Welcome to the New Books Network. So hello, everyone. I am Sarah Kearns, your host for this episode of the New Books Network. I'm very pleased to welcome Lee Calvay to the show today to talk about her recent books, both of them focusing on the science and spirit of animals. Her first book, Hidden Lives of Owls, and her more recent publication, Breath of the Whale, both go through exploring the beauty and mystery of the lives of these nocturnal and underwater creatures, respectively. Lee is a naturalist who has been all over the world studying whales, and as a science and nature writer, has written stories about a variety of creatures across the animal kingdom with amazing detail, as demonstrated beautifully in her books. So with that, welcome, Lee. Hi, thank you for having me today. Great. Um, So maybe you could start us off with a little introduction to yourself, and then maybe some of the motivations you had um, starting this uh, science and spirit series. Sure. Um, I grew up on a farm in Ohio, and some of my best friends were sheep. So it came very naturally to me to want to work with animals and to find a way to help them the best I could. I started out um, studying whales, and I did that for about 10 years, and then learned that I could maybe help them better by explaining their lives and exploring their environment through writing and sharing that with the public. And so that has taken me, started me on this journey of writing these science and spirit books. That's really interesting. I I like that your motivation was to like share like the stories of like the animals that you like know and like want to help. I like that. Like your motivation is like well-intentioned and not just like, not, not just purely curiosity, but like with an intention to help them. Yeah. Uh, Curiosity definitely plays a part. Um, but it, it, my main motivation is to speak for the animals who can't always speak for themselves to give them a voice. So, so far you've written about um, whales and owls in your series. So what draw, um, what drew you to them in particular? Well, as I said, uh, I was working with whales for about 10 years. And it was the LFA sonar issue that really pushed me into writing. I didn't feel like many people knew about that. LFA sonar is the loud underwater sound that the U.S. Navy was making low-frequency active sonar, and they were putting it out into the oceans, and there was a lot of disturbance with a lot of marine mammals, and that was a big concern, and the group that I was working with at the time, Ocean Mammal Institute, observed some of those tests that they were doing in Hawaii, and I felt like we were seeing things occur that maybe the Navy wasn't seeing. And so when we reported those occurrences, those events, um, they weren't taken seriously. And so I put pen to paper and took it to the general public because I wanted people to know what was going on. So that was my impetus for starting writing and the, the main event that kind of pushed me from science into writing. I guess once you wrote that piece about the sonar to the public, um, how did that, like you said, the Navy wouldn't listen to you right away, but what was the general public's reaction to it? And like, what were some of the consequences that came out of that piece? 
Um, I ended up writing several stories about that. One of them was in The Ecologist, which was an international magazine. And so not only was this a U.S. event, NATO was also using this type of sonar. And so I alerted Europe, I think, to that, and along with a lot of other people, not just me, of course. But, you know, they became aware of this. And then I think they actually banned the sonar in Europe. Um, and, and the public responded well, because, you know, we're not generally favorable for war anyway. <laughs> and to bring that, you know, war to the oceans and, you know, hurt marine mammals in the meantime, um, you know, the public was very responsive and, and very understandably shocked by what was going on. Were there any like U.S.-based policies that sort of helped come out uh, that came from that work? Uh, uh, the National Res Natural Resources Defense Council took this to court on a number of occasions, and I think they did make some headway. And I think it propelled more study of the consequences of sound in a more responsible way. Uh, Mid-frequency sonar, as a result, came out as being very harmful to whales also. Um, and I know that Cascadia Research, who I mentioned in the um, Breath of a Whale, I went down to Santa Barbara with them to, to look at their blue whale studies. They also study the mid-frequency sonar effect on beaked whales. And they do that in a more responsible way I'm not sure that the studies that the Navy was doing were as effective as they could have been at finding results, um, experimental results. So I think Cascadia has made those studies more effective. I guess since you just mentioned that this Cascadia group was doing maybe better or more responsible um, testing, could you maybe just like describe the two, uh, describe the different ways that um, this, the sound was be, like being studied with these whales? Well, they have boats out on the water measuring specific um, responses of the whales. And I think the Navy was doing, while they may have had boats and and land observers on shore looking they had boats on the water i don't think their study area was as large like we were quite a ways away from where they were doing the actual studies and seeing results of disturbance and you know at a larger range than they were doing also the sound that they were testing is not the sound that would be used by the navy ultimately it wasn't the it was a modification of the low frequency sonar. It wasn't the actual sonar. So it wasn't as loud. It wasn't the same kind of dynamic in the water for the whales. And so, you know, less effective in finding what would actually happen. Gotcha. That makes sense. This brings me to like a question I had reading, um, I guess, both the um, Hidden Lives of Owls and Breath of the Whale. Um, Something that you wrote in the um, 
headlines have always really stood out to me. Um, you say, to really learn about any animal I'm interested in getting to know, it is important to me to observe their wild ways. I consider it an honor to witness their behavior in the wild with animals undisturbed by my presence. Each encounter becomes a fond memory as if I'd met a new friend. So I was wondering if you could maybe um, help unpack that quote a bit, um, especially and maybe comment about how naturalists can really set up the conditions to really study and observe the animals with the least um, disturbance. Right. Um, I think with the whales, you know, I've done a lot of boat research. I've done um, a lot, a lot of land research and I feel like watching the whales from the land is probably the least impactful way that we can study them just watching their behavior normal and we did this actually before the low frequency sonar experiments we just sat on the shore and watched their comings and goings back and forth there's dolphins out there whales we just watched everything and recorded all that behavior and then so that's to me the least impactful way uh, i think there's ways to one of the other studies I was involved in was the impact of boat noise, like just a regular boat, a whale watching boat, a, you know, a pleasure boat, the impact on the whales. And so we actually did a study on that. So we found that there's ways to drive a boat for whale watching that is less impactful. And hopefully most of those captains are learning those kind of ways you can steer kind of to the side. You don't come on head on because that's how whalers came at them. Um, and you don't, you slow down. You don't just zoom past them. You slow down. Like uh, there's a, a big um, problem right now is boat strikes from shipping traffic in and out of ports on blue whales. We lose a lot of blue whales. We lose right whales every year from ship strikes. But if these boats can slow down as if they're going through like a car going through by a, a schoolyard, you have to slow down. So when once we learn that we can save these animals by changing our behavior slightly, then, you know, these we can make those changes. Um, with owls, um, I remember sitting outside in the middle of the night under a tree, and I, we were out um, kind of on the slopes of Mount Rainier or the foothills of Mount Rainier, uh, looking for flammulated owls. And we would just find a spot under a tree. We set up a net a little ways away, but we sat and listened for whale or for owls <laughs> um, for a long period of time before we actually heard, you know, the owls. So we just sat there. We became part of the environment and we didn't move. We could, you know, we didn't talk. We just sat in silence and waited for them. And I think Anytime you can do that, kind of finding a spot to sit quietly and then just become part of the environment, the animals will just return to their natural behavior as, as they learn to trust us in those situations. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, also makes me think of like that you have to learn to be patient and sort of watch and be mindful. Um, especially like when you're studying like a new animal or like you're moving, like you said, like with the whales, like you'd watch on the shoreline and then 
sudden you're like, oh, well, what if we went out on boats or with owls, like just like waiting patiently? It seems like you sort of had to know what behavior to look for almost, or like you have to know what to be paying attention to in order to like report accurately and then have some sort of like testable thing to come out of that. And I really feel, you know, part of the science and spirit, uh, my sort of motivation behind that is I think the two are not as far apart as we think. I think we can work together with those things. I consider intuition a spiritual um, part of spirit. Uh, and I think, you know, we get an intuition about animals that we're often told not to pay attention to. Um, you know, with our dogs and cats, we, we know when they're happy. We know when they're upset. We've been around them enough that we know this. If you go out on the water and watch whales, you know, when a whale throws its tail out of the water, you can, and a, you can pretty much bet that that's, you know, an aggressive or a, a nervous behavior. Um, with owls, you know, the um, great horned owl has those two little feathers on top of its head. It's not actually ears. They're just feathers. But they, you know, if they're upright, they're paying attention. If they're more relaxed, they're just kind of observing. And you get it. You kind of get a sense after watching these animals just intuitively what that is. And it's interesting to me, one of the most interesting things I learned in this journey is a group of scientists, of uh, neuropsych neuroscientists came together and wrote what was called the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness, in which they declared that animals have the same neurological substrates as we do, leading us to be able to kind of infer from our own experience of what might be, what might make us nervous or afraid or what might make us happy to see those same things in animals. And that, you know, they've studied elephants with PTSD. Um, I think some of the whales that have been hunted, gray whales show those same kind of signs. And so it gives validation to that intuition that we have, that we have with our dogs and cats. We know this. I, th I don't think it's any different with wild animals if you sit and watch them for long enough. Yeah, that leads me to like another question that I had um, from reading, reading these books is like, are there any maybe like limitations to that intuition or if there are any like uh, maybe dangers in that? I, wouldn't, I don't want to say personification since it's like humans have the same thing as the animals is it really personifying if there's like this deep connection spiritual connection that we have with animals are we really personifying them or are we intuiting something that's more hmm, i don't know the word but like more deep than just a uh, human emotion like if there if there are any limitations to that sort of connection or intuition that you described sure uh, i think there's always a limit to intuition as far as do we know how to use it? I mean, I think it's a new kind of idea for us to be using. And I think intuition lays the groundwork for science. 
Like if I feel like, like those, those uh, ears, the feathers I talked about on the great horned owls, that you could study that scientifically. If, if I think that my intuition tells me that when their ears are straight up, they're on alert and they're watching, something has startled them. If they're relaxed, you know, that whole thing, I can study that in, you know, scientific way using the scientific method. And so I think intuition leads to, oh, what about this? And I can find a way to study that. I think um, David Johnson does an excellent job about that. He's the global owl, global, oh, I'm losing the, the <laughs> global owl project. That's what it is. And he studies the burrowing owls on the Umatilla Chemical Depot in Northeast Oregon. And he wanted to know about, he's studying how these owls, why we're losing them and what's their habitat and all these different kind of things. And so he wanted to figure out how to trap them in the most, the best way for them, I guess, without, you know, injuring them or causing them too much harm. So he thought about it from the owl's perspective. He thought, what's the most important thing to a male burrowing owl? And he realized it's their territory. They're very territorial. They'll guard it with their life and they de decorate outside of their burrows They're, to show this is my territory and they're each unique. And so he figured out that that's the most important thing. So he created a, a way to catch them using a cage and putting an MP3 player playing the song of a male burrowing owl. And he was able to lure them into this kind of like a have a heart trap. It's a cage that the door closes and he's able to catch them in that way because they're so territorial. They don't want anybody in their burrow. And they'll, you know, fight them if they are in there. So, and I thought, I, you know, that points to using that intuition. He, you know, that's what he intuited that the, the males are very territorial. They're going to, you know, put up a fight. And then he was able to study them in that way and, and take their measurements, you know, the wings, the weight, all that stuff to see how they're doing. How are, how are these owls faring year to year? It's a long-term study. Is it the same ones coming back? He bans everyone. And he's doing a really great job in trying to help these owls whose habitat has shrunk from what it used to be. Yeah, that sounds really important to have that, um, like almost compassion for like the animals that you're trying to research and be able to study them in the purposes to help them or to even just understand them better. But trying to do so in such a way that reduces the amount of harm and like trauma that you're putting on these like little animals, like even so like being stuck in a cage, like you think, like they think they're going into a fight and like they just get stuck in a cage. Like that must be so stress out, like so traumatic for the little owls, even though you're still trying to study them with the best intentions. Yeah, that, that was hard. Um, we left them in there for as little as possible. I mean, they weren't in there for long and we turned off the sound as soon as we got there. But yeah, I was very sensitive to that. And, you know, there are times when 
I think scientists interfere with the animal's life, like to tag them. I mean, you got to catch them to tag them. And I think we can do that with as little harm as possible. And with some animals, you know, it's necessary to give them a bad experience with humans. Like you catch a bear and a wolf, you want to make sure that they are staying as far away from humans as possible. It's the most loving thing we can do in some cases. Hmm. That makes sense. I I don't think I would have thought of that. Like, yeah, you don't really want to encourage wolves to come back and hang out with uh, humans. <laughs> it usually ends badly for them, especially bears. Yeah. I guess, too, um, like you mentioned, that it's probably taken a lot of time to optimize these types of methods of like catching and studying them, too. Like, There's almost like a science to the meta catching and releasing of owls or whales or yeah for sure <laughs> um and and nobody catches whales so that's a real yeah, adventure <laughs> to get tags on them i um i went out with um cascadia research as i said to look at their blue whale research and i had the opportunity to go on the boat that was tagging them and that was like a National Geographic experience of a lifetime to be just right there beside a blue whale. And they're reaching over with this long pole with a suction cup on the end, trying to stick this tag on the whale. And is it going to stick or is it going to fall off or what? It's definitely a learned through many trials and errors. <laughs> and they do a great job. And that, you know, they minimize, if they see they've disturbed the whale for too long, they'll just leave that whale and go somewhere else. So I, I feel like every, you know, everyone's doing their best to learn as much as we can about these animals. Um, and I think as time has gone by, we've learned ways to minimize our impact as much as possible. I also imagine that most people who are studying animals do so with like a love of the animal. That's like usually not with the intention to make their lives worse off. But I guess sort of given that, um, this sort of leads me to like the next maybe series of questions I had was like, how um, how can we like sort of balance the human intervention that's sort of well-intentioned without like causing bigger problems like downstream, either, even from like a conservational standpoint? Like I imagine that there are ways that humans have tried to be involved in animals' lives that have sort of accidentally backfired, even though it's been with good intention. Or, I mean, conversely, like without, or humans have done things to the planet that without like considering animal like best interests. So I guess I'm wondering if you could maybe comment on how we can have that well-intentioned interaction without like overstepping in an animal's life and habitat. That's, I know it's a huge question, but. Yeah, it, um. I think we do have impacts on animals and I, I don't know that everyone in science is as well intentioned as we would like. Um, you know, I, I know there are biologists studying wolves that use leg hold traps to capture them in order to tag them or whatever they're going to do, collar them. Um, I have a real problem with that. Um, some of the noise underwater, you know, I, I think, okay, 
whales depend almost entirely on sound for their existence, for finding food, mates, you know, just about anything. Their life is sound. They can't see. It's the ocean. It's dark. <laughs> and so, you know, how much how much do we have to study to know that sound is going to impact them? How much study does it take? You know, we're trying to adjust our levels, but then I kind of think, well, why are we, why are we messing around in their environment in the first place? I mean, all these, all these boats, ships that travel across the oceans are adding to the noise in the ocean. It impacts these animals on a daily basis. There was a study done in Canada on the sound in the Inland Sea, the Salish Sea, that showed that orca whales, the southern resident orca whales that are highly endangered now, lose up to six hours a day of foraging time from noise of shipping traffic. So that's a problem. If we know that we're doing it, there are ways to put a muffler on the ship. I mean, it's not called a muffler, but that's basically what it is. We don't have to make the noise that we're making in the ocean. And I wonder, you know, how much of that can we provide a response without having to test it ad infinitum? Yeah, that makes sense, especially since implementing like the muffler, as you called it, it's not like impacting trade overall. It's just like in, just changing the sound itself. Like you're not, you're not telling people to stop riding boats or to stop trade. You're asking just to be a little quieter. And even slowing, even slowing boats down makes them quieter. So, mm -hmm. you know, why not do that? Add that to the list. Yeah, I think, and here, you know, this is a, a key thing, I think. I've just, I just was watching a film that I was asked to review called Entangled. It's about the North Atlantic right whales and the sort of the, the impacts that the lobster industry is having on right whales. It's the same thing that that's happens out here on the West Coast with gray whales and the crab traps. You know, the, the, these whales are getting entangled in these buoy lines that lead to the trap. Um, there's new technology coming out now that they can have lineless, ropeless traps. Um, that they can, it's technology that will blow a, a balloon that will bring these traps back to the surface when they're given mm -hmm. a signal. Um, everybody's, the lobstermen understandably are a little bit nervous about using those traps. They haven't done it enough. They don't know about it yet. And, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's going to take working together. It's going to take all of us working together. And I think if we regulate to try to stop people from doing something, that makes them want to do it more. But if we can find a way to work together and have everybody win, then that's the best way to go about it. And I think that's sort of a new frontier in human thought. <laughs> kind of like we don't have to fight with each other if we just work together it's going to be for the betterment of everybody and i think that's you know what we're going to have to do to learn to live here on this planet together 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. I really also like the point that you had about like, oh, like technology is improving so that we can sort of implement these things to make not only human lives better, like I imagine having a balloon that just yanks the trap up, that would probably make our lives or a fisherman's life easier as well. So that there's like that positive and sentiment to help humans, both humans and animals. That's really cool. Yeah. That, that technology has improved to be able to do that or that we're being mindful about the technology that we're making to be able to do that. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Absolutely. And technology helps us to study these, mm -hmm. these animals in a less intrusive way. I mean, a really great example of that is the snowy owl that um, Project Snowstorm um, in 2013, there was a huge eruption of snowy owls on to, down to the East Coast. And they kept, some of them were injured or whatever, and so they took that opportunity to put um, harnesses on them with satellite trackers. So they could, and so they were, they tracked the cell phone towers. And every time an owl flew by a cell phone tower, it would relay that data in the, um, the I forget what they're called, techno, in whatever that thing is called. <laughs> but it, re, it relayed the, um, the data. And so how many cell phone towers does an owl fly by in a day? Probably a lot, especially when they're migrating. So... It's a, it's a really good use of technology that's small enough that an owl could carry it. Yeah, small enough these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess also when you had mentioned like the, um, the impact of like crabbing and lobster fishing on owls, or not on owls, on whales. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> These animals <laughs> but <laughs> you think they're different enough but here we are um but i was also wondering um sort of based on in the i was mostly thinking of this because like you have this section in the owl book about how to balance helping like the great gray owls and like the great horned owls just because they seem to have like a little competitive or one of them is like a predator to the other one but obviously we want to make sure that both are flourishing and not like having one not having human sympathy for one over the other but sort of how how can we sort of balance sort of that part like letting like letting nature take its course but also like making sure that we're helping not just like the one animal that we're studying right now yeah, that gets really tricky, and I think that does take a little bit of scientific perspective of kind of not getting emotionally involved with the animal at that point. But I think, you know, taking care of the general environment, the general habitat, to be sure that these animals have what they need um, doesn't, you know, if, if they have enough to eat in the mice and the voles, then they're not going to go after each other. And that you mentioned that the great horn taking the great gray, that was a really dangerous thing for that owl to do. Um, 
because a great gray is much larger, not much, but it's larger, it's lighter, but it's larger, and so has the ability to really fight back and has the ability to really hurt that owl to the point where maybe it can't hunt anymore, maybe it's injured, it's, you know, injures a wing or gets an eye poked out or whatever, you know, it, it's really risky behavior. Um, it's also interesting with these gray whales here in Puget Sound, they, Cascadia is learning about this really risky behavior that these gray whales are engaging in. They're going in at high tides into kind of a, the mouth of a river into these shrimp beds to feed there because they're not finding enough food elsewhere in able in, to, in order to, you know, stay healthy for their migration to Alaska. So, you know, if we take care of the ocean and, you know, don't pollute it, don't, you know, whatever is going on with the climate, um, keep that, you know, work to keep those things, the general habitat of these animals under control, then they don't have to engage in these risky behaviors that are going to pit them against each other sometimes. Um, not always. I mean, some of that is just natural behavior, but other times, you know, if, if the environmental health is there, they don't have to go that route. Yeah. I think that makes you wonder sort of how, Maybe this is like a, maybe it's something that humans like intuit, but it just makes you wonder how we know or how like scientists know, or how can we discern whether or not something in animal behavior is like a natural one or if it's one that's like caused or brought on by external forces? Well, it's, it's a bit tricky because, you know, this science that goes on today, a lot of this science is very new. Like with whales, we've only been studying them since the 80s. Before that, we were just killing them. So, you know, that's still pretty new as far as what's the long-term population. What, what was the population before whaling? We can guess, but we don't really know because we weren't studying them then. Um, so the fact that there's 20,000 gray whales they seem to think that that's carrying capacity because we had quite a large die off last year of gray whales. And so, and you know, in that period of time with the gray whales gone from their p place in the environment, how did the environment respond to that? What came in to take the place? Is there a place for these whales now? Humpback whales is the same thing. Um, they were down to about, 1400, 1500, when I started studying them in the 90s, and now there's 30,000 of them in the North Pacific. And they're having trouble finding enough food. They're ingenious enough to learn to feed off of what humans are doing. I, I write about the Alaska Whale Foundation and their study of how a few humpback whales have learned to feed off of these salmon pens. When they release the salmon, from the pens, the whales are there from these salmon farms. The whales are there to eat those salmon. It doesn't take a humpback whale a very long time to eat an entire season of farmed salmon. So they're, you know, having to outsmart the whales at this point, which is a, you know, 
a harder task than <laughs> than it sounds like because they're pretty smart. I feel like that also reminds me of some of the owl studies that you described that like you'd like help feed the feed the owls. I imagine that a lot of owls like learn pretty quickly, like, oh, researcher equals I'm going to get a lot of mice today. It does. I think for some of them, I, for um, the spotted owls, for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of those owls, the population is so low that a lot of those owls are known to researchers and know the researcher. So, yes, when they come, the owls are there to get the reward of that. <laughs> They're not dependent on them in any way, but they know that a researcher equals mice. There's other, um, the other, the great gray owls that I helped to save, the family, um, the father was taken by the great horned owl, which we talked about earlier. And we were able to, we, it was us that had to learn how to feed them. Because the mother, when she first saw the mouse, we put, put a mouse out on a log, and she was there within five seconds taking them out. And she'd never seen a researcher in her life. She didn't know anything about people giving her mice or anything. But she was there. It took her all of five seconds, and we were like, oh, I guess that's how you do it. You mean like that's how, like she learned really quickly how to like hunt, even though she hadn't hunted before? Is that what you mean? Uh, she learned to take mice from us. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so the other, the, uh, the spotted owl encounter I had, we put, I held a stick and they put a mouse on the end of the stick and the owl had learned to come in and get that mouse from the researchers. This owl, this, uh, great gray owl, we were trying to save her life and her, her chicks lives. And she had we had never done that before. We never thought about, you know, it's nature. It's taking its course. It's, you know, the father feeds her, she feeds the chicks. It works like that. But without the father, there was no way those chicks were going to survive. So we intervened in that way. And she basically taught us how to help her. I feel like with that story I was really impressed and like inspired that it wasn't just like like the number of people that it took to come together to save this owl family I was wondering um if you could maybe talk a little bit more about sort of like the citizen science aspect and like the community around um I guess in this case it was bird watchers but I think just like maybe more in general like how how like naturalists and citizen science can help um, out these animals, like in a respectful and in a respectful way that doesn't like cross any boundaries or make um, animals like dependent on humans or whales or any animal, right? Yeah. In that particular case, um, we knew that the father was dead, um, Andy Huber, whose um, land that was on, Growweiser had actually seen the interaction, the end of the interaction where the great horned owl carried off the great gray. And he found feathers where it had happened and he knew what had happened, that the father had been killed. 
And um, through some work that I had done with um, the group in Montana, Owl Research Institute, I had heard about a great gray that had been killed, and those chicks died. That owl was struck by a car, and they watched that nest, and those chicks didn't make it. The mother is not a very good hunter on her own. They're much larger. Their main job is to defend the chicks. And so for her to catch all those mice, they need like four or five mice a day. There was four chicks. That's 20 mice plus hers. She wasn't going to be able to do that. So they, the future for those chicks was not a good one. And so we kind of mm -hmm. thought, well, do we get them to an animal shelter? Do we let just let them die? Do what happens? What do we do? And so I, I called um, David Johnson of the Global Owl Project, who works on burrowing owls not too far away from where this happened. And he said, well, just try to feed them. Set up a feeding station. Feed, feed the mother and the chicks if they want, you know, find a way to feed them. And so we did. And we caught the mice, wild mice, out in the field with traps and then fed them to the owl. And she was able to feed the chicks. And prior to trying to find a way to hunt these mice, I mean, you know, it's not easy to hunt mice. You would think it would be because there are so many of them around and they're always, you know, in places where they shouldn't be. But <laughs> when you need to find 20 to 25 mice a day, that's, I mean, respect to the owls because it's not an easy <laughs> job. So we had... You know, people began to in the area began to know about this story, and they want everybody. And I mean, some people had been out to see the owls. The nest was very visible; you could see it, and people came to see. And so they knew about this story, and so they sent pocket gophers. They sent um, one person sent a chicken they didn't want anymore, which the owl did not go near that chicken. It also did not go near the frogs that another person sent. And so, you know, people just tried to help in any way they could. What does an owl want to eat? And they would try to send that. And uh, another person from Portland brought some frozen rats. And so it, just, it became this story that really got around the Northeast Oregon and um, was really amazing how people really wanted to help this family. It, it captured everyone's hearts and all those chicks survived. And it, it's just a really good story. Yeah. I really like, I really liked it that like everyone sort of came together and had a really good success story with these, with the owls, but sort of maybe tying that back to what you were saying with the whales and the salmon. Um, are there any like negative consequences to like that type of interaction or that type of like intervention? Maybe not but in particular with the owl family, but maybe like at a bigger scale is, are there problems with that like human interaction with an animal in like that big of a way, especially with the whales and the salmon farm? Yeah, I, it's, it's a really tricky thing and I don't, I would not have done it myself had I not felt really positive about trying to help this particular family. 
Um, mm-hmm. Feeding owls in general is not, not I wouldn't recommend it. Um, I think they can become dependent on us. They can become nuisances. And, you know, any interaction that a wild animal has with people can put it in harm's way. It brings it into our sort of what we think of as our territory, you know, brings it into contact with traffic, with people that maybe don't like animals like we do. You know, all kinds of things can happen. Um, with the salmon and the, the whales, um, that's a really tricky one. I imagine farm salmon is not probably the best thing for whales to eat, but, you know, if it's going to help them survive. And it's not, it's not always, it's a small group of whales, and they're, you know, the salmon farm is doing whatever it can to try to move the salmon to another place before they let them go out of the, you know, but the whales are going to, you know, they're going to have to keep changing because whales are smart and they'll figure it out. So, mm-hmm. um, but I, it gets really tricky when humans interact with wild creatures on a number of levels. I think we have to be really conscientious about what we're doing, why we're doing it and what we hope to gain from that. And I think if we always keep the animal's best interest at heart, I think we have a better chance of inter- interacting responsibly. I, in general, I don't recommend feeding wild animals. I just, I, you know, it's worrisome on so many levels. Yes, I think that's a good takeaway for listeners to not, do not feed your wild animals. <laughs> Squirrels like birds, you know, that's maybe a different story, but, you know, squirrels get to be nuisances and people, you know, they get into bird feeders and then, you know, then where are you? So my mom has an ongoing battle with squirrels in her bird feeder. And <laughs> yes, yeah, squirrels and deer for my mom. <laughs> but I think you sort of hit like something like a key, like something really important with like trying to hit like a moral cord with trying to balance like human desires with what the animals need overall. But that sounds like a really hard like note to hit given the complexity of human desires and the complexity of the ecosystem that's changing just inherently in addition to whatever humans are doing. It just sounds like a very, really complex um, situation to even try and tease apart what the sort of like right thing to do is. Um, but I, wa- I was wondering if you could maybe describe some of the work that some of these organizations are doing um, towards that front or like any like outreach and educational um, stuff that you think that more people should maybe be aware of or any particular organizations that are doing a good job with that. I think um, both the Global Owl Project and the Owl Research Institute are doing really great um, outreach efforts and education with both burrowing owls and short-eared owls. Those are both owls that are losing habitat rapidly because they nest and live in areas that we farm that are now being developed, housing developments. Mm -hmm. Uh, all these kind of things. And if we, if we become aware that these animals are living there, these, in these places that we're doing this, 
then, you know, it gives us a choice about, okay, do I want to put my mall here or do I want to locate it, you know, someplace closer to town that maybe doesn't have as much habitat that I'm just going to, you know, plow under or, you know, pave over. So um, I think the more we know about animals, the more choices we have to, to make, you know, where, how important it, are these animals? How important is the habitat? How important is the environment to us? Do we realize the benefits of biodiversity for us? Mm. I mean, I'm always a just biodiversity just because it's good for the planet, because it's good for the animals, but it also has an impact on us. And the sooner we learn that, you know, the sooner we're going to start making better choices, I think. Um, but And Cascadia does a really good job of awareness for the whales, um, you know, keeping boats away from the area where the gray whales are feeding, making people aware that there are whales feeding there. Um, Orca Research Institute, I think that's what it's called, and, you know, makes us aware of what the orcas are doing here in Puget Sound. They're not doing well, so we need to kind of stay away, give them more space. Um, I think all these things, the noise we put in the oceans, how we can change our behavior, I think all these things are, are really important. And the more we know, the better we can do. I think, you know, we're all, when we do, when we know better, we do better. And I, I think... You know, there's enough environmentalists out there sounding the alarm for what's happening on the planet with the animals, the birds, the fish, everything, that we're learning more and more, and we're learning better ways to do things, and we will make those choices. I'm confident that we will make those choices. Yeah. I like, too, that it seems to start with just cultivating a practice of having like a quiet awareness or maybe like a patient observation of just like the world around us. It doesn't even need to be some huge impactful thing. You can just start off with quietly observing. And then like what we were saying before about like intuiting sort of like the needs of the animals and the needs of the spaces that we're in. So I like that it just starts off with that appreciation. Yeah, I think it really does. And I, I think, you know, with us being at home <laughs> much of the time in the last year has given us time to sort of look around us. What's in my yard? What kind of birds are in my yard? What kind of animals are here? Um, and to learn to pay attention to those things. And what am I doing? How could I, how could I mow my lawn better so that I'm not disturbing animals in the tall grass or, you know, all these kinds of things. I, it's little stuff that we can do on a daily basis. And it's not, it's not just our planet. We humans are not the only ones here. And I think we need to learn to live together with all beings on the planet. All. Yeah. I think that's our responsibility. Yeah. That reminds me of, Another quote, I think this is also from the Hidden Lives of Owl books, you say, 
no matter how resourceful they are, some of what it takes for them to survive is out of their control. But it is within ours. We get to choose how we live on the land. I feel like that sort of ties into what we're sort of talking about now, how like sort of we're sort of called to be like responsible stewards of not just our ecosystems. Absolutely. So maybe as we start wrapping up, um, maybe you could tell listeners um, sort of what animal or naturalist adventure that readers could expect next. Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> uh, there's a number of things running around in my mind, and um, I looked a little bit at peregrine falcons. I'm thinking about those birds, uh, that comeback story. I'm, I'm really interested in stories that show people coming together from diverse backgrounds, from diverse perspectives. I love those stories because I think that's what it's going to take to save us, to save them, you know, the planet. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take people coming together. And the Peregrine Falcon story is a really great story because people from North America, South America came together, um, scientists, naturalists, people from all walks of life came together to save these birds because they're fascinating creatures. And, you know, we couldn't stomach losing them. It's also really convenient that, you know, they're not very political. A peregrine falcon is not in competition with us in any way. Because the other story that is really interesting to me is the story of the wolves and that every, you know, how those people managed to reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone. That was a huge success, the comeback of the wolf. But now wolves are moving into Washington. Wolves are moving into Oregon, California. They want to get them back in Colorado. So how do we learn? There's and a lot of people love wolves, but there's a, another group of people that can't stand them and want to kill them. And so how do we balance that? How do we learn to live together with us? Cause we're fighting with each other about wolves are great. No wolves are terrible. There's a huge fight. And then how do we learn to live with them? How do we learn to raise livestock responsibly so that it's not running through wolf territory? I mean, I was shocked to learn that cows just wander wild in the woods in the Northwest. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's not fair for a wolf. So, you know, get the cows out of the woods. What's the problem? But I understand, you know, that ranchers have done that for, you know, 100 years. And so how do, we, how do we balance all of our needs to learn together? I find those stories fascinating. And so I think that's where I'm heading next. Some combination of stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. It sounds like really both, both very complex stories that maybe are partially resolved, but still have an open-ended sort of call to action on, on our ends. Yeah. I think, you know, the call to action is awareness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. awareness of how we're living on this planet and how can we do better for the benefit of all ourselves and the animals. 
yeah, that all sounds sounds great. Um, maybe I'll just wrap up by, again, um, thanking you for coming on to the New Books Network podcast and sharing your work with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was my honor. <laughs>